0: Welcome to DIA today, Democracy in America today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines.
1: Hard to believe it's December, Dave. Christmas around the corner. Oh, three three weeks or something left until Christmas. Yeah. Back in back in California, um, I'm not yet. We're not yet held hostage here, but. On a day-by-day basis, the the edicts change in terms of what they're doing in California and LA County. So, it's kind yeah, of,
0: I read you're not supposed to walk outside. So,
1: you're not supposed to uh, breathe. Yeah, I know.
0: That's, try try not to exhale. That's the same strategy that they're using against carbon emissions, too. I think so. All right. Well, we've got a lot to talk about today, and we're going to focus on the issue of religious liberty, following up on the Supreme Court's ruling last week that set aside at least temporarily some COVID restrictions that have been placed upon churches in New York City and synagogues in New York City. And we want to look at that, in the broader context of the question of religious liberty, get a little bit of historical perspective on that as well. But before we get to those headlines, I want to remind you about our Instagram account, Democracy in America Today, all strung together as one word. We've got our social media whiz, who's done a lot of great things with the account in the last several weeks. So we'd encourage you to check it out and follow it. Uh, In order to get the latest updates on the show, you got little audio clips, you've got some nice graphics and things, things that clearly are are well beyond our capacity. But but thankfully, the next generation uh, knows these things and is doing good work for us, which we're very grateful for. All right, so let's turn to the headlines. You can be forgiven if you weren't paying attention to the political news the day before Thanksgiving. But on that day last week, in a five to four decision, the Supreme Court supported a First Amendment challenge by the Roman Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and two Brooklyn synagogues to restrictions that limited attendance at indoor religious services to 10 people in so-called red zones where COVID activity was the highest and 25 people in orange zones, which was the next most serious designation in Governor Cuomo's schematic, regardless of the size of the building or the mitigation measures that might be in place or would be willing to be adopted. Plaintiffs in the case argued that the regulations violate the part of the First Amendment that guarantees the free exercise of religion. And there's some more legal story to that as it's applied to the States through the 14th Amendment, but bottom line is it was a free exercise of religion case that they brought. And as the majority decision shows, these cases have been run through a, a two-step framework in order to evaluate whether laws do in fact run afoul of the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. So the first question is whether the law, or in this case regulation, is Religiously neutral and one of general applicability. Uh, So, for example, if you had a COVID restriction that required all businesses to admit no more people inside than 50% of the maximum occupancy, that would probably meet the standard because it's applied to every business equally and discriminately, and it serves an obvious uh, public health purpose in this particular case. But in this instance, the court argued that the regulations here cannot be viewed as neutral because they single out houses of worship for especially harsh treatment. And so they compared what the rules were for churches and synagogues and red zones to what they were for quote-unquote essential businesses. And of course, essential businesses include things like acupuncture facilities, campgrounds, garages, And so if you put these side by side, it looks like you've got an extra burden on the religious organizations who want to meet that you're not placing upon these quote unquote essential businesses. And in fact, when you get to the orange zone, whereas you have this maximum of 25 people for the church or synagogue, non-essential businesses even can decide for themselves how many people they want to admit into their building. So there's essentially no restrictions on either essential or non-essential businesses. Obviously this means, at least in this analysis, that these are not neutral regulations, that there's some extra burden placed on religious organizations that's not being placed on certain kinds of businesses. And the law is not one of general applicability because it's, it's specific to this case versus that case. So it's not a law that covers all businesses equally. And so because of that, then this triggers the second stage of review. And so as the court puts it, then since the restrictions are not neutral and of general applicability, they must satisfy what's called strict scrutiny. And that means they have to be narrowly tailored to serve a compelling state interest. So both those things, both narrowly tailored and serving a compelling state interest. And the court came to the conclusion there was certainly a compelling state interest in limiting the spread of COVID-19. Obviously, uh, a global pandemic is is something that a a government has a reasonable desire and even obligation to try to stop to the degree that it's able to do that. But if you looked at these regulations, the majority concluded that they're not narrowly tailored, that they're far more restrictive, they said, than other restrictions they looked at in, in earlier cases. Um, tighter than those that had been adopted by other jurisdictions, which had had similar difficulties with, with COVID and also were more than was required by the the need to limit the spread of COVID. And so for example, everyone recognized that the churches and synagogues in question had not had spreading cases within their congregations, despite having opened over the summer for services. And so the argument was in essence, that this was more restrictive than was necessary given the actual track record of these particular plaintiffs. So that's the overall structure of the court majority's opinion. Now, Neil Gorsuch, Justice Gorsuch went further. Uh, he wrote a concurring opinion and essentially argued that what was going on seemed to be a bias toward secular things. And he, he cites the language of Governor Cuomo, who talks about why laundry and liquor and travel and tools are essential while religious services are not. And Gorsuch is concerned that actual First Amendment protected activity is being given less prominence by New York state and by Governor Cuomo in this particular case. And that businesses that that deal with matters of, of secular concern have been elevated in their status and given fewer restrictions. So it seems that at least as Gorsuch is framing this, that what we have is this emphasis on our material needs right, rather than our spiritual needs.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the whole issue here boils down to, and you might get to this anyway, this this question of essentiality and um, human choice and you know i I think that what kind of annoys the religious believer is the sense that you know some you know on the court uh, of a secular humanist bent do not understand worship as essential to to one 's being and and place as a barrier to that mere life and securing life as essential. And I mean, you mentioned this last week. The you know, we, when we celebrate Thanksgiving, right? We're doing something that really kind of celebrates uh, goes back 400 years, right? To to the Mayflower. So, can you imagine, right? You know, the authorities saying in Leiden as the ship is about to depart, well, is it really essential that you leave right now and cross this ocean? Right. Is it is it really essential uh, that you know you you cross an ocean so that you can um, live uh, in, in liberty to, to worship God as you see fit. Because so what I'm saying, Matt, is that the whole country by and large, or a good part of what becomes the United States, gets its beginning you know, from a choice that men and women thought was essential uh, to be able to live in peace and worship God as they see fit. But 400 years later, that same activity is is viewed in, as in, in a questionable nature. Does that make sense?
0: Right. right. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is one of the situations where we really see how our changes in how we view human nature have real policy implications. The Christian account of human nature includes body and soul. Now, we need food for the body and we need food for the soul. And there's, important things that have to be provided to keep bodily life going, and there's no reason why we should denigrate those things, these essential, truly essential things. We have to have food, we have to have basic shelter and provision of those kind of things. But we can't ignore the fact that human beings are more than the mere material, that we have a duty and privilege of worshiping the Almighty God who made the universe and, of course, who supplies all those material needs as well by his bountiful provision for for all people. So, you know, we're really missing out if we go through this experience and we come to the conclusion that the real lesson here is we better make sure that the grocery store's supply chains are are all solid and church can kind of come and go as, as necessary. And you know, there there is some indication as as Pete Peterson was saying a couple of episodes ago that that maybe people are disconnecting a bit from church during this period, which is which is troubling, right? If, if, if we somehow take from this experience, not just that the government maybe looks at it this way, but, but that we somehow begin to lose the longing for, for worship and, and Christian community and just sort of replace that with whatever we're doing on zoom or, you know, the, essential bodily functions um, that we have to take care of and,
1: you know, meet in order to, to merely survive. The other thing I was thinking is that a lot was put in to uh, trying to pass the uh, Amy Coney Barrett um, nomination through uh, and uh, to, to have her on the court. And there was great fear at the time, right? That, that what was going to be undone was, was the Obamacare policy. But in reality, it seems to be that the biggest thing that's come out of her timely appointment uh, is a very clear um, advance for religious liberty uh, in the country. Um, uh, one uh, that I think you rightly say is is a reasonable opinion, uh, but one that would never have happened had you had a 4-4 court right at this time. And I think it, it's, it's kind of very important to maintain um, that balance at this time in our nation's history, because we're, you know, we're just kind of one powder keg away, right. From things being blown up further. But I, I, I think that the court got it right. Uh, and I don't, and I think that, uh, it's, we're blessed that, uh, that the decision came down when it did, because I think, um, I'm, I'm seeing, I'm seeing even here in California, uh, it having an impact on, uh, on how uh, the state, you know, comes down on, on, um, religious institutions.
0: Yeah. Just yesterday, there was a a case that was sent back to the Court of Appeals by the Supreme Court that had been decided against a church that was challenging Governor Newsom's restrictions in California, which basically were shutting down worship entirely, and the Supreme Court said look, go read our recent opinion and look at it again. So obviously suggesting that that would be controlling in this case, and therefore this isn't just a victory for this one diocese and a couple of synagogues in New York City, but it's it's a principle that's now being applied directly to other similarly situated people uh, in worship contexts.
1: Yeah. And it's reasonable and it's a reasonable opinion. It will be, a, it, it, it'll be a reasonable standard moving forward um, to, on the issue. So I, I guess what I'm hoping that comes out of this decision are similar kind of reasonable constitutional standards uh, that can ca- help alleviate this, this tension um, between kind of a, a black and white approach to all of these policy issues.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So just to share a little bit of the analysis of this, um, a few kind of quick clips as it were. So, first Andrew McCarthy writing at the Hill and really picking up on the observation you made about the fact that now Amy Coney Barrett's on the court and the significance of that in this particular five, four vote, but then trying to look at that in a broader, the broader lens, he says the trajectory is shifting away from deference to autocratic executive power and toward the constitution's protections of core liberties, the separation of powers and the bill of rights. And he concludes the piece The court was not unmindful of the need to show appropriate deference to the judgment of elected officials who are responsible for public health and accountable to the people affected by their regulations. In this instance, however, the court is not being asked to either defer or substitute its judgment on an ordinary policy matter. Here, the very heart of the First Amendment's guarantee of religious liberty is at stake. As the majority concluded, even in a pandemic, the Constitution cannot be put away and forgotten. And that makes all the difference as the court's liberals recognize only too well when a case involves some right they've managed to derive from penumbra's mystically drifting from the constitution's emanations. It should not be our burden to defend our entitlement to core liberties. It should be the government's burden to prove that they must be denied and courts should eye such claims with skepticism. So McCarthy projecting a new way of thinking about the balance between liberty and government authority and suggesting that this court may very well return to the founder's understanding that these core liberties are meant to be restrictions on government action, and that, again, the burden of proof is on the government that wants to perhaps limit those liberties, that it can demonstrate that it has a compelling reason, that it's not actually striking at some essential liberty, even if it turns out that restricting its powers is inconvenient in some ways, or or prevents it from accomplishing some purpose that it finds compelling and important. Now, on the other hand, we have retired Harvard Law professor Lawrence Tribe and Columbia Law School professor Michael Dorff, who argued that the court got it wrong, first of all, because they had the wrong comparison, that rather than comparing essential businesses to churches, they should have been comparing churches with theaters, and that churches had similar or, or better status under the, the red-orange criteria than those theaters. And so they argued that the court should have looked at that comparison. But then they took the Neil Gorsuch concurrence and really ran with it. And so this is how they conclude the piece. After introducing his foreign policy team last week, President-elect Joe Biden proclaimed that America is back. In important respects, that will be true come January 20th. But at the Supreme Court, America is increasingly unrecognizable. Our court that affords no protection to unenumerated rights to bodily integrity and privacy, and of course he has in mind abortion there principally, while simultaneously eroding the separation of church and state, which they argue this decision does by, they argue, preferring churches to other secular organizations, would look less like our familiar institution, And more like the highest judicial authority of a place like Gilead, the theocratic and misogynist country in Margaret Atwood's dystopian *The Handmaid's Tale*. So, so maybe *The Handmaid's Tale* is is on the way back after all, Dave. Well,
1: it's it's comical, right? That uh, that they both are upset uh, that the decision marks a, a breaking away from what is familiar. I, I think they're true there, right? Uh, they make a truthful claim there. What has been familiar so recently uh, in constitutional jurisprudence is not not actually employing the Constitution when making a decision. So the fact that here you finally have the Supreme Court that's, that's doing so and actually kind of uh, by the letter of the law with regard to the free exercise uh, of, of worship, uh, that that's that somehow uh, theocratic is, is comical.
0: An interesting third piece to consider, Stanford law professor Michael McConnell and NYU law professor Max Raskin. So you've got your you know, Ivy League-ish pairing with your New York City pairing. You know, this is apparently the, the combination. I think we haven't maybe met those criteria in our writings, but maybe this is something to aspire to. But they argued in the New York Times that, that we shouldn't be focusing so much on the 5-4 split because both Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Breyer expressed skepticism concerning the restrictions, but basically argued that they didn't need to decide the case at that moment because those restrictions had actually been lifted just a few days before by New York. So that by the time the case was decided by the Supreme Court, neither the diocese nor the synagogues were actually under those restrictions anymore. Now, the majority said, yeah, but we still have to decide this because they could reimpose at any moment, and the governor still claims the right to impose them. So there was a, there was a question sort of, of, of whether there was a, a timeliness issue. Uh, but on the matter of principle, it's arguable you've got seven justices actually in favor of the logic of free expression that the majority opinion represents. And so they conclude from that that, that that's a good thing. That, that we should celebrate that this isn't actually a partisan decision, although it's being framed that way by many. They write, perhaps Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Breyer believe that Governor Cuomo and government officials around the country will read the court's opinions and recognize that it's time to bury the meat cleaver and begin to regulate constitutional freedoms with a scalpel, without the need for a judicial order. That message is lost if the case is seen as the mere product of Justice Amy Coney Barrett's arrival at the Supreme Court. With the presidential election behind us, the balance between COVID-19 precautions and civil liberties no longer needs to be a partisan one. The right to exercise religion in accordance with conscience is one of the most important in the Bill of Rights. And it's time for mayors and governors and courts to treat it that way.
1: A little hopeful, I think. Uh, that may a nice rendering of uh, uh, Chief Justice Roberts and, and Justice Breyer. Um, I, I think that um, Governor Cuomo and... And uh, in individuals like him, like Governor Newsom and, and others, um, for them to put down the meat cleaver uh, may be impossible, uh, uh, given uh, what they think of of uh, their powers and, and how they ought to um, use them. Uh, there seems to be kind of a, a sanctimonious, um, a, a great sanctimoniousness there for for both of those uh, politicians and, and others like them. So. Uh, I I have a feeling they're going to return to the meat cleaver approach, you know, rather soon and or just disregard the decision. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to move beyond partisanship on this issue. Unfortunately, I think it's too much of an optimistic accounting, although I do enjoy the fact that um, they recognize at the end of this piece, just how central uh, the right uh, to worship and practice exercise religion is to the Bill of Rights
0: yeah I think that, that is important, right? That, that, that can't be a partisan issue. We may still have partisanship over COVID restrictions and you know Joe Biden coming out and saying he's in favor of a hundred days of, of masks for the first hundred days of his administration. But whatever the, the logic and hashtag science behind that might be, you know it, it's, it's a good thing if some people on the left who really, you know historically, a lot of defenders of civil liberties have been on the left. If, if they recapture that affection for not just some parts of the First Amendment, but all of the First Amendment, and can make common cause with people on the right in defense of religious liberty. And I think all the more so as, as we look forward to a Biden administration at this point, because we have to remember where we were at the tail end of the Obama administration. Right? So the last major case involving religious liberty was the Obergefell decision in 2015, which established the right to same-sex marriage, and you know the opinion, majority opinion, was, was quite ominous. Justice Kennedy, at that point, writing for the majority, said that people that disagreed would be able to still teach their principles, but he made no mention, as Justice Roberts pointed out in dissent, of practice. And so really free exercise, right? If, if free exercise is just teaching something, then it's not really for the free exercise of the U.S. Constitution. And it's not really an adequate protection for religious liberty. And, and you may recall that during the oral arguments in the Obergefell case, the Obama administration's solicitor general admitted that the nonprofit status, the tax exempt status of religious organizations that were against same-sex marriage might be in jeopardy if this Supreme Court decision were decided in favor of a right to same-sex marriage, as as of course it was. So that hasn't obviously been something that was pressed by the Trump administration, but with a new administration coming in, we may see efforts on the executive branch, at least, to move in this direction. Now, maybe we'll have some resistance by the court, so we'll see how that plays out, but but this is a, a timely reminder, I think, of the need to maintain momentum, forward momentum on the protection of religious liberty as this new administration comes in that you know, last, last we met these players, they were moving in a very different direction.
1: Yeah, I just go back to Amy Coney Barrett's acceptance speech. That was just a, a beautiful lesson in in constitutional jurisprudence as to uh, the. You may have policy differences, but if you want something else to be in place, you pass it through the legislature. But as far as the court is is involved in in any kind of policy decision, it's involved at a constitutional level through the right reading uh, of the Constitution itself. So I I think this is just kind of a This is a beautiful moment in American history that, you know, we finally have a court uh, that is going to employ uh, that, you know, constitutional jurisprudence uh, to these matters. And I I imagine it will have um, Uh, it will have an influence over um, uh, similar decisions like this uh, moving forward, that uh, there'll be more policy in which uh, a religion is is read out of the constitution, uh, religious protections are read uh, out of the constitution by policymakers where the court will say, no, you can't do that.
0: Now, to give a little more historical context, we're going to turn to our required readings. So Dave, what do you have for us this week?
1: I want to start out by um, reading from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, uh, the original 1647 edition um, chapter 23 deals with the civil magistrate. And um, here, part one, God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, hath ordained civil magistrates to be under him over the people for his own glory and the public good. Uh, And to this end, hath armed them with the power of the sword, for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. So here kind of a clear statement that uh, the civil magistrate has been ordained by God uh, to uh, think think of and defend through the power of the sword uh, the common good. And then a third part that kind of builds off of this idea, the civil magistrate may not assume to himself the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Yet he hath authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church, that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administrated, and observed for the better effecting whereof he hath power to call synods, to be present at them and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God. Uh, So there's uh, there's an area there, right? That what the the civil magistrate cannot take part in, but the civil magistrate right uh, in this confession is given quite a bit of authority uh, over matters within the church itself. So, When when you read through this and and you're thinking about this this time period, right, of the middle of the 17th century, first thing that you have to recognize, right, is that Europe has just kind of gone through these series of religious wars, the 30 years war, right, uh, in which um, uh, the whole continent has has been, you know, torn to shreds. And at the same time that this confession is drawn up that that kind of grants uh, the civil magistrate power over these matters within the jurisdiction, uh, of, of, of that nation state or that civil body. Thomas Hobbes uh, is writing the Leviathan in which he's also kind of clearly hoping and, and projecting that the state uh, or the sovereign uh, would would hold a greater amount of power over the affairs of, of mankind. So uh, for those of you who've read the Leviathan, right, that, that the, the state uh, comes into being and sovereign power is assigned uh, so as to um, draw men out of a state of nature and provide a greater amount of peace and security uh, for uh, for all living within a political community. But Hoppe says uh, that the power of the sovereign uh, extends uh, to more than merely keeping the peace of society. Uh, the power of the sovereign um, uh, can be so great that uh, the, the sovereign can judge what is necessary for the peace, what doctrines are to be taught uh, to keep the peace, but then moreover, the right of making rules to keep the peace. So this is uh, from section dealing with, with sovereign power that uh, seventhly, it's a, next to the sovereignty, the whole power of prescribing the rules whereby every man may know what goods he may enjoy and what actions he may do without being molested by any of his fellow subjects. And this is it men call propriety. For before constitution of sovereign power, as has already been shown, all men had a right to all things which necessarily caused war. And therefore this propriety being necessary to peace and depending on sovereign power is the act of power in order to public peace. So propriety is that newfound authority or jurisdiction uh, that the sovereign have over all matters, including matters dealing with the church. So later on uh, in this uh, discussion of what power the sovereign has, Hobbes assigns the power of the sovereign over the church. And he says the following, I define a church to be a company of men professing Christian religion, united in the person of one sovereign, at whose command they ought to assemble, and without whose authority they ought not to assemble. And because in all commonwealths, that assembly, which is without warrant from the civil so- sovereign, is unlawful, that church also which is assembled in any commonwealth that hath forbidden them to assemble is an unlawful assembly. Working through these long paragraphs of Hobbes it can sometimes be difficult, but when you realize the point that he's trying to make here with regard to relations between the church and the sovereign, it's the sovereign that gets to define whether the church can be it's the sovereign that can define whether the church is professing the christian religion correctly it's the sovereign that can define whether or not that church can assemble and if it doesn't give it its warrant to assemble then the church is an unlawful assembly so think about that that idea right in the middle of the 17th century and then move forward to our present day and it really kind of is is the logic right, of the secular humanist on the principle of worship. If I say that you can assemble, you can. If I say that you can exercise your religion, you can. But if I say that you can't, for whatever reason I'm going to put forward there, then I, as a sovereign, have the power to do so. So it, it creates this great imbalance between church and state, right, to to the, um, the great advantage of the state. In part, you could defend Hobbes, in the middle of the 17th century, wanting to grant the state this power, you know, given the religious wars that had torn Europe apart. But could we do the same in the year 2020?
0: And I think the trick here is the broad use of the word peace or the word safety, perhaps in our day. Right? Whatever tends toward peace is justified. And so in Hobbes's day, that means if people are going to gather in a way that stirs them up and religious assemblies inspire passionate actions. And those tend to undermine the peace if you multiply them various ways. And of course we're talking about a work that was written during the English civil war, four years after the Westminster assembly, which is also meeting during the English civil war. So I mean, this isn't an abstract question of war and peace, but, but the, the logic as you extend that, as you're saying down to the present day is Whatever is necessary for security, right? whatever's necessary for, for good order, right? all these things we have to defer to the government on those points. And, and if the church is going to act in ways that undercut that, then the church has to have its authority removed. And, and it's interesting, as you're pointing out, that you know there's there's a deference to the civil authority in both these documents. Hobbes claiming that, that right for the sovereign but also the Westminster Assembly giving a rather robust role to the civil authorities in at least enforcing orthodoxy. And this is a role that over the course of time, the confessional Presbyterian church would actually reject. So there's more to the story as we move forward, which is interesting as we think about some of the historical antecedents for our present debates when the Presbyterian Church was organized in America during the colonial period in 1729, what's known as the Adopting Act, they received the Westminster Standards, which had been the standards of Presbyterianism for nearly 100 years by that point, with the exception that they didn't recognize third paragraph of chapter 23 on the civil government to be a true expression of biblical teaching. And so they, they reserved judgment on that matter and, and they didn't subscribe to that. And there was one other clause that was kind of related to that in chapter 20 as well. Now they didn't replace it, but but 60 years later, now a free independent United States of America, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America being founded in 1788, they adopt the Westminster Confession. And now this time they replace that language. So they, they rewrite the third paragraph of chapter 23. And this is what they write. Civil magistrates may not assume to themselves the administration of the word and sacraments or the power of the keys of the kingdom of heaven, or in the least interfere in matters of faith. Okay, so that last little part is added. The first part is, is retained from the earlier statement. Yet, as nursing fathers. It is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the church of our common Lord without giving preference to any denomination of Christians above the rest in such a manner that all ecclesiastical persons, whatever, shall enjoy the full free and unquestioned liberty of discharging every part of their sacred functions without violence or danger. So the point is to protect the church from assaults that the ministers of the word can carry out their function, their God appointed function in, in good peace and order. So it's, it's a civil function, right? The job of the government is to provide that order in which religious assemblies can then come together and, and meet. But, not to interfere in the carrying out of those
1: religious obligations. In that same, I mean, this this language is amazing in that same paragraph. They go on to write, that it is the duty of civil magistrates to protect the person and good name of all their people in such an effectual manner as that no person be suffered either upon pretense of religion or of infidelity to offer any indignity, violence, abuse, injury to any other person whatsoever. So here, once again, the, the protection uh, uh, is put into place uh, for, for worship. And then this last part of it, and to take order that all religious and ecclesiastical assemblies be held without molestation or disturbance.
0: Right. So that's the exact opposite of the Hobbesian position, isn't it? Uh, the point is to preserve the freedom of the church to meet rather than to tell the church when it can and can't meet.
1: Correct. So it's interesting, right, that that's adopted at the end of the 18th century. You said 1789. So that, that's adopted at a time where you know, the, the Constitution uh, had just been uh, framed and, and, and put into place, uh, and the Constitution, of course, w- with a Bill of Rights. So we're talking about kind of a, a simultaneous statement on the matter uh, uh, from the church, and then from a state that is supportive of, of, of those same measures, correct?
0: Yeah, I mean, almost exactly contemporaneous. So the first general assembly of that new Presbyterian church, which by the way was convened by John Witherspoon, the former president of Princeton and revolutionary hero, pastor, Scottish Presbyterian, and signer of the Declaration of Independence. So he he convened that general assembly, preached the opening sermon. And then, yeah, this is in May, end of May in... 1789, two weeks later, Madison proposes what becomes the, the first draft, as it were, of the First Amendment in, in the Congress. So they're in Philadelphia having this meeting. Madison's in New York with the first meeting of the Congress there proposing the Bill of Rights. And although the language obviously differs and one's in the language of the church and one's in the language of, of constitutions and state papers, the overall point is almost entirely the same there ought not to be an established church and that the free exercise of religion ought to be protected, that the government has a positive obligation to ensure that the free exercise of religion goes forward and to not add hindrances to that. Now we can add a further layer of all this, that this, the same general assembly actually prepared an address to president Washington. So Washington was inaugurated April 30th, 1789. So now we're a few weeks later at this General Assembly. So this this resolution they send, George Washington, they say public virtue is the most certain means of public felicity and religion is the surest basis of virtue. So they're, they're recognizing the connection between the work of the church and the work of the state. You want to pursue the common good as a government. You need the support of a church that is training people in, in a life well lived, that is directing people to the pathway of righteous conduct. And then Washington responds, he writes back, again, it's, it's this perfect parallel where, where he puts in the language of a political leader, something very, very similar to the language that that General Assembly had sent to him. So he writes, While I reiterate the possession of my dependence upon heaven as the source of all public and private blessings, I will observe that the general prevalence of piety, philanthropy, honesty, industry, and economy seems in the ordinary course of human affairs are particularly necessary for advancing and confirming the happiness of our country. While all men within our territories are protected in worshiping the deity according to the dictates of their consciences, it is rationally to be expected from them in return that they will be emulous of evincing the sincerity of their profession by the innocence of their lives and the beneficence of their actions. For no man who is profligate in his morals or a bad member of the civil community can possibly be a true Christian or a credit to his own religious society. Right? The, the, the nation needs a strong church. The, the, the government doesn't have an interest in controlling the church the government has an interest in encouraging the church and in, in maintaining that, that security that allows for this free expression of religious faith and, and all the, the things that follow from that as, as Christians engage in loving their neighbor and loving God in the normal course of their activities.
1: So you have the example uh, prior to uh, Hobbes uh, and, and these religious wars in the first half of, of the 17th century uh, in at times of, uh, of the assumption of power by the church over the state, you have the reversal of that in the middle of the 17th century, where the argument is that the state ought to assume authority uh, over the church. But then you have this mediation, this, this brilliant and I think well-measured mediation between church and state that you see in Witherspoon, that you see in Washington, that you see in, in Madison's introduction in the Bill of Rights as to the free exercise of religion. So isn't this a great place to be able to turn uh, as, as we make our way forward on, on these matters in the 21st in the uh, century? We, we have this great constitutional heritage, we have this great historical heritage where to the degree we can get this thing right, Uh, within the city of men that we live in, uh, we do. And and why not use that as the standard moving forward, given that there will be differences between us um, in the upcoming decades?
0: Yeah, it's a great opportunity to just recapture some of that, in this case, particularly American history. This is an American contribution to the broader world understanding of how church and government can be mutually helpful in aiding individuals to achieve the good life and, and the common good and to do their complementary roles in ways that don't make them rivals with each other, but but helpers to each other and, and to recognize in that mutual help, the, the gift of God, who's established both church and state and given them their functions. It, it, it's no surprise that church and state's roles can ultimately be reconciled if they both come from God and God's overall plan obviously is not one of confusion, but one of right order. All right. So let's turn to the great book as we start to wind things down. So for a lot of people, I don't know about you, Dave, but, but certainly for us, the weekend after Thanksgiving is, is when you really go full into Christmas mode, Christmas decorations we started a few days early this year. I have to admit that that week before Thanksgiving, the kids were, were off from school and my wife was eager to get going on it. So they got a little bit of a head start, but we kind of wrapped it up last weekend. So we're gonna talk about three Christmas season traditions that, I don't know, it feels like at least to me, they're maybe not quite as strong as they once were from when we were growing up, but but three things that have a venerable part, uh, at least in the past of, of Christmas season, and you get your grades on, on those as we think about reviving those or maybe maintaining those in our own households. All right, so number one is the live tree. And, you know, you've got some, some variation here. You're really old school. Go out there and cut it down, right? You know, when you're in Texas, it seems like that's the kind of thing you should do. Maybe California, it's more buy it off the lot kind of thing. Um, I know you have this split personality, split life you're you're, you're doing there, but um, either way, right? The live tree versus the the plastic, easy setup, cheap. You know, get it out every year, put it back every year. What do you think the live tree, Dave?
1: It oh, it boils down to the smell. Yeah, there, you can't the the smell of a live tree. Yeah, that's a Christmas tree. Okay. And so if you, I mean, you want a tree to look good, but, you know, when you bring it in the house and, and you know, it's kind of like a cold, you know, it's cold outside, you bring in that and then you just smell that like live for, that's, that's, that's an A plus. You, you, okay. can't, you can't go artificial there.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I have to admit that we do have an artificial tree when we've had one for a number of years. That's, and,
1: I, I cannot, I have to admit it, artificial tree.
0: Yeah, and it, it's starting to get a little ornery, too. You know how those those uh, like Charlie Brown trees that you, you find that are just, you know, have a few branches here and there, really not well filled out? Well, you know, of course, the, the artificial is meant to be the opposite of that. But over the years, it begins to not quite be what it once was. So we're kind of getting in Charlie Brown territory, so it might be time to replace it. Um, or you know, maybe maybe try the live tree one time. We've we brave enough.
1: Try for one year. It'll cost you somewhere between you know seventy five and one hundred fifty dollars. It's the only thing about the live trees now, yeah. especially in California. I don't know what they're where they're getting their trees, but it's it's like three times the price of any tree you've ever bought in New England here in California. Yeah, but.
0: I'm I'm gonna give that a B plus for the sake of the memories of days of yore when we would go out and we would a few years at least we cut down our own tree and certainly other years we would get it off the lot. So my parents definitely are, are live tree people. All right. Number two, how about the old Christmas card? So, you know, now that we've got Facebook seems like we're not getting as many Christmas cards as, as we used to, maybe more picture cards. People are doing that when they do cards. It's kind of easy to produce those these days, but, but not a lot of the kind of newsy letter sort of thing. Uh, which I guess I can cut both ways. <laughs> Some of those newsy letters you might be happy to to do without, be able to forego those. But but uh, what do you think of the the Christmas card tradition, Dave?
1: I like it. Also an A, I think. I, I think the tough thing about 2020, though, is that you just don't have as many pictures this year as you had in the past. Uh, we actually go further than the, I don't, don't want to say we. My wife goes further than the <laughs> Christmas card. She does a Christmas calendar and what we try to do is get pictures in from all of our friends and family and into that calendar. But we just don't have pictures of people this year because we haven't been around them enough, but I I like the tradition. I I think it's a, it's a, it's a nice way to reconnect with people that you haven't um, had the opportunity to for uh, past 12 months.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it depends on how active you are on social media, right? Because, you know, for someone like me, who's not on Facebook at all, it's actually still, kind of fun to get a Christmas card in the mail and a little bit of news from somebody that I haven't been in touch with for the last year. Oh yeah, the kids are getting bigger or, you know, they took that trip or whatever's going on. But I think, you know, for some that are more active on social media they're like, okay, we know all this. <laughs> we didn't even know what you had for lunch yesterday. Right. We've seen all the pictures. We've, we've heard all the stories. Is there any, any need for this information? So I'm all for it. We, we keep up sending out the Christmas cards and uh, I appreciate the tradition, but, but I understand why some people might find it a little bit redundant in this social media world we live in. Still going to give it an A, but and uh, you know, keep the cards coming our way. We we like to put them up and make a collage of all the cards that we get. Third option: outdoor lights displays. You know, and 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 you know, we're we're not talking about necessarily going the full Griswold, but you know, some substantial effort to to decorate, and you know, you can. Make your choice whether that's kind of the the more tasteful lights where you're gonna go for the inflatables, you know. Um again I, I sort of feel like Texas Corbin might might do inflatables. Um California cool, it's probably more of the low key lights. But you you tell me.
1: I might give this an A as well. I've I've never done kind of the the kind of inflatable frosty, the snowman or okay. you know I, I just it's not not quite me. I, I maybe just like they're just too expensive. If I went to Walmart, it'd be like I don't know, hundred dollars for each of them. But I I, I kind of like just the kind of the classy. Uh, maybe I'm sounding California now. Okay. Just you know, the right, you know. You don't want the colored lights. You want just kind of plain white lights. It's got to kind of go, you know, with your house also. But I I like it. I, lo- I love. Uh, we love just driving around and and kind of seeing. Uh, neighborhoods uh, where, you know, these lights are on on display. Not not the obnoxious, but um, the, the tasteful, uh, I'll, I'll give an A.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we like that too. It's one of our Christmas Eve traditions, drive around the neighborhood. And we've got, we've definitely got a few houses that are pretty into it. And, you know, it's kind of a mixed bag. Some of them do the kind of weird uh, hybrid, here's a manger scene next to Frosty, next to Santa Claus. And, you know, they're all miss. You know, mishmash kind of display, but you know, it's at least it's bright and uh, shows a little bit of the the spirit of the season. My wife does a really nice job. She's always got some nice light displays, kind of wraps them around the the railing on our front porch, and it looks good as you're kind of driving along, walking along. So I'm going to give that an A 2 Appreciate the effort. You know, growing up, we would always have a a, a larger tree in the front yard, and you, the question was, how many years could you? As that tree grew, you know, could you keep stringing the lights all the way up before you had to go to the spotlight? And they, they finally cut the trees down, and then they replaced it. And now we're at the point, again, where my dad's saying, ah, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to keep doing the strings. It's going to be spotlight soon again for this new tree. So the, the life cycle of the, of the tree in the front yard. But, you know, you make a good effort for as many years as you can until it becomes more dangerous to put those lights up, and then the spotlights come out again. Well, as always, we're going to end the show with the Tocqueville's crystal ball. Those of you who listened last week know there was a real special appearance by two of the Corbin kids, who showed that well, the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Unfortunately, they were one and four, and so the Corbins now cumulative record sixteen and thirty-four. Uh, I was I was four and one. Had a pretty good week. And so I'm up to 28 and 22, but you know, Dave's mentioned that uh, he's heard rumors that there's some people out there that are basically just taking the Corbin picks, flipping them around and turning this into a real money-making machine. And so, so we thought a little, little inspiration from pop culture as we get going for our picks today. Every decision I've ever made in my entire life has been wrong. My life is the complete opposite of everything I want it to be. I wouldn't say that about your whole life, Dave, but it might be fair to say that about your picks. Uh Right. So so here we go (laughs) with that encouragement. Here we go. We've got number one, Texas A&M at Auburn. So A&M seven point favorite. They're the number five team right now trying to get into playoff position. Auburn, always a tough place to play. What do you think?
1: So usually, I, I've got to do the opposite of of what I, I would would think. Okay. I, I would think Good. that Texas A and M should be able uh, to to cover, but so I'm going to go with Auburn, Auburn, because I've got to choose the opposite. So um, yeah, Auburn there. So we'll see. All right, yeah, this, where I'm going to go five and zero this week. So. <laughs>
0: Uh, We'll we'll see. That that may very well be the case. Because I was choosing Auburn, too. So now you're definitely on the right track because you're just borrowing my picks, um, having been somewhat more successful than you on this. All right. So we both take Auburn. We think it's at least going to be a close game. And Texas A&M then probably doesn't get the style points they need to threaten Ohio State's number four position in the college football playoff. All right. Number two, late-breaking we were originally going to do Liberty at Coastal Carolina, but it's 2020. So Liberty's not playing Coastal Carolina. BYU is. which turned out to be a pretty interesting matchup. We've got two ranked teams. BYU is number 13. Coastal Carolina is number 18. Both undefeated, 9-0. Not getting a ton of respect in the college football poll. Not surprisingly, both of them have played fairly weak schedules. So this is kind of their uh, each of their best chance to impress and to show that they are a legitimate, if not title contender, at least a, a major bowl contender. So we got a 10-point spread in favor of BYU. What do you think, Dave? BYU or Coastal Carolina?
1: So normally I'd pick BYU, but I'm going to go with Coastal Carolina. <laughs> Once again, I, th- I think BYU should be able to take this. I think it's the better team, but yeah. why, why go with what I think? Go with the opposite <laughs> of what I think, Coastal okay. Carolina.
0: Well, I, again, I'm taking Coastal Carolina. I make all my picks before we have this conversation. So I, I can prove that I'm not just imitating you, but I, I do think this might work for you. All right, number three, we've got our NFC East game of the week. We've got the Washington football team, which is now tied for the division lead with the New York Giants, both four and seven, very respectable and they are on the road against the undefeated Steelers. Steelers are favored by 10
1: points. So usually I think that 10 points would be too much, but not this week. I'm going to go with the Steelers <laughs> and 10 points. Steelers a blowout. Okay, well, this is where I'm going
0: to disagree with you. I think, I think Washington's going to be able to keep it close. Uh, I'm really counting on Antonio Gibson for my fantasy team. So you know I've, I've got some real stake in this one. He's, he's been carrying me all season. So I I think Washington football team is able to hang in there, uh, maybe even pull off the upset. Uh, Maybe the Steelers looking ahead a little bit. They weren't great the last few weeks. The burden of an undefeated season begins, I think, to weigh on some of these teams this time of year. Remember the the Patriots, their 16-0 season. Those last four or five games, it was a real grind. So wouldn't surprise me to get a little bit of that with the Steelers. So I'm going to take the Washington football team, at least covering, but I wouldn't be shocked if this is actually the end of the line for the Pittsburgh undefeated season number four we have the bills at the 49ers sort of uh, playing in arizona thanks to the covid restrictions of santa clara monday night bills eight and three 49ers five and six bills a two and a half point favorite what do you think
1: i think the 49ers are better than a five and six team so i'll go with the bills (laughs) okay
0: all right. Perfect logic. Once again, always works. So, yeah, I think the 49ers, I think they're, they're desperate. You know, they're, they're playing for their playoff lives. They're they're right on the edge of being out of the playoffs. Um, you know, Nick Mullen is not much worse than Jimmy Garoppolo. They've got some talented uh, offensive weapons coming back. Uh, you know, Debo Samuel's looking good. Iuk's back. Mostert's back. So I think, I think the 49ers have, have a good reason to to play hard. And I I think they actually pull off the upset. But at the very least, they keep it tight against the Bills in Arizona. All right, lastly, so we always have to do something a little bit outside our comfort zone for our number five pick, college basketball. We've got actually an early season really top matchup here, at least if the pollsters are right. Number one, Gonzaga against number two, Baylor. The game is in Indianapolis, so really no no home or away advantage there. But Gonzaga is a two and a half point favorite.
1: You know, I would think that Gonzaga would would win this one. I just they're a great great program and have been, and I think we're, we're strong going into this year. Uh, so I, I I imagine that's why Baylor should win this.
0: <laughs> Once again, your logic is impeccable. So <laughs> I'm gonna take Gonzaga, but. You know, it's like this, if this works out for you, Dave, we may have an entirely new way of, of doing picks. I mean, the, the Tocqueville's crystal ball is, is being revolutionized, perhaps, even as we do this live here on a, on a Friday afternoon
1: if they have rename it, it yeah, exactly if, if i go five and oh we may need to rename it you know corbin cash or something like that so.
0: well or maybe the costanza crystal ball actually That's you know sure. the costanza okay. rule seems to be the one that we're, we're playing on here so Good. all right well we'll see we'll see if if, if we go to according to form we'll probably both be like two and three and and uh you know equally bad in our choices here but Thanks again for listening. As always, we're grateful for your support. Please remember to subscribe and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. We look forward to talking to you next week.